Friends and enemies, welcome to the Progress Report. I am your host, Duncan Kinney. We're recording today here in Amiskwichi, Wiskaigan, otherwise known as Edmonton, here in Treaty 6 territory. And today, we're very lucky to have Regan Boychuk of the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project on to talk about Alberta's mind-bogglingly huge environmental liabilities um, from oil and gas, and what exactly that means for everyone who lives in Alberta as we reckon with our legacy of generations of fossil fuel development and a regulatory regime that you would uh, character characterize generously as uh, deadbeat dad. Um, based on what report you read, you know, we're looking at uh, tens, if not hundreds, maybe a, a quarter trillion dollars worth of environmental liabilities in Alberta. And not only is that a real thing, but the other part of what we're going to talk today is, is how AIMCO, Alberta's crown corporation that's responsible for managing workers' pensions, is tangled up in all of this. But before we get to the expert, I think we're going to test drive out a new kind of way of introducing our pod. And I think we're just going to have producer Jim and I kind of riff off the top, introduce what, what it is we're talking about, and kind of just go over a few concepts and things that you know might not need to be covered over by our guest, but we think that it's important for you to know about. So producer Jim, welcome. Hello, hello. So Jim, uh, I, I mean, I know you've just come back from a round of bronchitis. How do you feel about coming back just in time for uh, coronavirus to shut down uh, the world economy and Alberta's economy? Well, I, I mean, I didn't need the practice. I've been social distancing my whole life. It wasn't great practice either because I was sick while everyone else wasn't. I mean, when Corona hits, I am not going to be able to live off skip the dishes every meal. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you can try, but I mean, it's... Uh... I might have to start paying you more if you want to live strictly off skip the dishes. But I got paid sick days, which is better than most folks in Alberta are getting. Uh, you know, the uh, locations where people can't afford to take unpaid sick days, like grocery stores, senior care facilities, uh, retail places, malls, etc. Daycares. Daycares, yeah. Uh, these are places where it's incredibly dangerous to have contagious people. And uh, I think it's a real dangerous situation we're looking at, especially with regards to the senior care facilities. You got people out in these privatized rural locations working for like $15, $16 an hour, understaffed already. Duncan, do you remember the CBC report from back in January about that woman in, in Viking uh, who passed in her senior care facility? Oh, yeah. That because was, they, yeah. they literally weren't bringing her water to drink and yeah, like privately clean, clean undergarments it was she, privately run she had bed sores that got infected or something just awful stuff yeah totally absolutely heinous uh now think about those understaffed facilities uh dealing with a like really lethal to seniors pandemic rolling in uh while the workers themselves are sick as hell because they can't take days off uh we're gonna see some pretty unpleasant death rates. Mm, yeah, I, I know. I mean, th this episode isn't about coronavirus, but when you look at what coronavirus is doing to Alberta, Alberta's budget, Alberta's economy, um, and you layer it on top with this Saudi Arabia, Russia kind of price war, it really is uh, pretty fucking dire, right? And it is really pretty fucking dire for uh, a lot of the companies that we're going to be talking about today on this podcast. Uh, Alberta's conventional oil and gas industry is already doing very poorly. <laughs> There's really no way to sugarcoat it. And um, 
this is this is a problem because Alberta's conventional oil and gas industry is the one is the, is the part of Alberta's economy that owns and operates all of our mature oil and gas infrastructure. We are going to get a very clear example of why it is so bad to privatize all of the profits while handing all of the risk to the public. That risk is being called now, you know, cards on the table, uh, and we are going to be the ones left holding the bag. Yeah, we are very likely to see bankruptcies roil through this industry, right? And and, and when companies go bankrupt, their oil wells um, and the responsibility to clean them up goes to the state, and eventually. Right now, they go to the Orphan Well Association, which is ostensibly this industry-funded group. But by all analysis and accounts, the, the Orphan Well Association has nowhere near the amount of resources on hand to actually handle the problem. And so, uh, you know, this was just in the last budget, actually. Jason Kenney allocated $100 million in a, in a, as a loan <laughs> to the Orphan Well Association. And and, uh, and I know you had some thoughts on that in the last newsletter, right? No, it's, it's ridiculous. It's uh, that loan is never going to get repaid. So, uh, I mean, we are just paying to clean up the messes that uh, these these shareholders and board directors and so on have left us. You know, people like Brad W. Brad Wilson. And and so this is this is what is facing us, right? You know, AIMCO, the Crown Corporation responsible for managing Alberta's public sector pensions, is deeply invested in oil and gas companies with massive environmental liabilities. And we're going to go into the complexities of that, of those, what those relationships are, because they're like mutually beneficial and parasitic. I mean, whatever it is, it's all bad for us. Um, and the other thing is that Kenny is now talking about using public money to invest in oil and gas. Right. He's very he's come like like two days before the budget came out. He was like, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to we've got a, we're working on a plan and we're going to invest God knows how much money in, in publicly investing in oil and gas companies. The fact that these things, uh, you know, the coronavirus slash price war has happened, I think, are only going to intensify that for Kenny. And so it's worthwhile to consider what AIMCO has done on this case. Right. There was nothing. The reason why and the reason why it's worthwhile to consider AIMCO is that there was nothing in the budget on this. No. So, so where is the money going to come for these plans that Jason Kenney has? I mean, I think we have to look at all of the empire building happening with AIMCO and say that it's going to be coming from workers' pensions, right? It's going to come from us, you know, ultimately, whether they dump a bunch of pension money into it or whether they just run up the deficit and then cover that by cutting services down the road. Both sides of this crisis are just full on shock doctrine. Right uh, on the Corona side, our healthcare system is going to get completely overwhelmed, and they will use that to call for more privatization. And on the orphan well liabilities side, they're they're going to use that to call for more handouts to these corporations, more tax breaks to these corporations. I mean, look who they just appointed to chair their panel to come up with a response to the price crash. Imperial Oil board member Jack Mintz, uh, tax break crusader. This is not a guy who is going to advise that the government, you know, implement a wealth tax and sell government bonds or, to or uh, even invest, massively uh, invest in, in infrastructure, right? Or even invest in like Keynesian like stimulus spending. Right, right. right. This, the stimulus, uh, air quotes behind the mic, <laughs> that he is going to advise is uh, just tell them they don't have to pay as many taxes. Yeah, yeah, it's not very encouraging. But I mean, enough uh, of us kind of opining on this issue. We're very lucky to have Regan Boychuk of the Alberta 
Alberta Disclosure Liability Project on today to talk about the unfunded unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis and AIMCO's complicity in it. And uh, the ALDP is a very interesting organization. I encourage you to look them up. We'll have their URL in the show notes. You know, they they their mission is to ensure that the Alberta government no longer neglects its obligation to collect and disclose accurate, independently verified information about oil and gas liabilities. And their aim is to ensure that all political parties make clear commitments to address this urgent and ongoing issue. They're a really fantastic org, and Regan has been kind of sounding the alarm, dealing and talking with landowners and digging into the data on this issue for years now. So there really is no one who's more knowledgeable on this issue than him. So let's get to his interview. Regan, welcome to the Progress Report. So nice to have you on. So we kind of talk on the phone, you know, from time to time, and and you seem to be uh, like a pretty regular working class dude. You know, I call you and you're like waiting for shingles to show up for your roofing gig. But you also seem to have stumbled into one of the biggest stories that is going to affect Alberta over the next 20 to 30 years, and that is this unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis. How did you actually get into this? Uh, well, indirectly over a period of time, I've, <clears throat> I'm, not, I'm not just a roofer. Uh, I'm also a political scientist, and I've uh, been an independent researcher here in Alberta for a long time. I've been studying the oil and gas industry in Alberta for more than 15 years. Uh, and in the course of that, I've made a, been able to make a couple insights in my spare time. Uh, and initially, the first ones are around profits and royalties, how much we get paid for the oil and gas that's produced here. Uh, and eventually, that led to the issue of old wells and uh, what we're going to do to clean them up and the potential it has to put people back to work in these tough times. And so uh, the more I dug into it, uh, the more I learned of the scale and the more I learned about how the two issues that I'd been researching for 15 years were intimately connected and that these old wells was actually the reason why I'd been watching royalty rates uh, get lower and lower uh, in the, over the last 15 years in Alberta. I watched it but couldn't explain it. Uh, and uh, <clears throat> after the last royalty review lowered royalties even further, uh, I was looking for an outlet for uh, all the researchers and all the research I was working on and shifted my focus to old wells as a way to put Albertans back to work. Uh, but uh, didn't really know what I was getting into until I got quite a bit deeper and realized how big and a bad of a problem it is. And you are in a, a different, you know, you're in a bunch of different spaces, right? Like academia and activism, but then you're also out there like talking regularly with like conservative as hell, like rural landowners who are, you know, whose politics, they, I mean, they're probably definitely voted for the UCP, but they're also definitely like mad as hell about uh, having, you know, leaking and old oil and gas infrastructure on their land. And there doesn't seem to be any plan from government on it or industry on how to clean it up, right? Yeah, it's true. I've learned a lot of what I know about this from landowners, from farmers and ranchers all over the province who've been dealing with these issues firsthand uh, for decades uh, and learned a lot from them. Uh, politics aside, uh, lots of uh, interesting and uh, interesting characters across Alberta. And there's some, uh, I, may, I may be a roofer, but I've got some other tricks up my sleeve. And uh, so do a lot of these farmers. Uh, pretty impressive characters. Uh, politically, uh, they've always leaned right. Uh, but this is an issue that affects them. It's been simmering for decades and is really boiling over at the moment in Alberta for <clears throat> right-wing conservative 
uh, farmers are calling for sabotage. Uh, rural politicians are in open revolt against the province. And uh, it's really, really quite a political moment here now. It certainly seems like it is a time, like a, like a, t- a moment in time right now where this is coming to a head. And, and I know this is a really big subject, um, but can you give us like a five minute Coles Notes version of, you know, the unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis? You know, what is the problem? What is the scale of the problem? Um, you know, who is ultimately, ultimately, who's responsible for cleaning them up? How are they failing in that kind of regard? Uh, kind of walk us through it for someone who's only kind of maybe passingly familiar with it. Right. So we drill lots of oil and gas wells across the province over many years. Uh, but with the license for every one of those activities comes with the legal and moral responsibility to clean up when you're done, to return the land to near the state it was before you started. Uh, but there's a flaw in that system uh, that regulators and politicians are, are, are generous to industry, and we let polluters pay as they go. We don't require them to set aside a bunch of money for the eventual cleanup up front because that would take money out of circulation. They could better spend it on other uh, daily operations, they argue, and out of generosity and in an effort to stimulate economic activity, we let them pay as they go. Uh, the problem is uh, you let them go too long and there's no money for the cleanup. And that's essentially where we've gotten in Alberta. We've been drilling oil and gas wells for 100 years. Uh, most of that time, there was uh, little to no environmental regulation. It wasn't a major concern until the 80s and 90s when um, rules were really tightened up. Um, no, just to jump in for a sec, like I, I know that we had some uh, some boy, the Medicine Hat newsboys on a couple of weeks ago, and they told me that like back in the day in Medicine Hat, you would just like dig a well for natural gas in your backyard back in the day. It is. Um, there was a, there's a great series in the Edmonton Journal in 1992 uh, about uh, a brief window of cleanup activity we had in Alberta, and they talked about the old days up and up until the 70s. They said nobody really cared much about the environment. Uh, spills or leaks were cost of doing business, you just bulldoze them over and carried on. The important part was uh, getting the oil out of the ground and getting paid for it. Uh, so for a long time, those environmental concerns uh, weren't big. Uh, but once we did start to take them seriously, we never uh, made the tough decision of getting industry to set aside money uh, for the eventual cleanup. And so what's happened in Alberta is we've drilled hundreds of thousands of wells over many decades, and there's essentially $0 in the bank to clean it up. Uh, and that the reason a roofer spends all of his time working on this issue is because the previous work I did on profits and I tracked the outside of the oil sands. I tracked the profits in Alberta for the last 50 years. Uh, and so I know something happened. Uh, it's quite significant that no one wants to admit here in Alberta. But in 2010, outside of the oil sands, uh, the Alberta oil and gas industry started losing money, started spending more on fracking uh, than it got out of the ground. Uh, and so not only have we accumulated many decades and hundreds of thousands of wells that need to be cleaned up, and we haven't saved any money for it, we've allowed the industry to continue operating past the point of profitability. And so for the last 10 years, the industry has racked up more than $50 billion in losses. And so it causes a real dilemma about who's going to pay to clean up this mess that's accumulated. So, so give me a sense of the scale of the problem. Like, how many wells are we talking about? What, what is the the probable dollar figure, you know, that you've estimated or that the regulator has estimated that's going to take to clean it up? Well, there is an enormous amount of oil and gas infrastructure in Alberta. There's uh, about four hundred fifty thousand wells have been drilled, 
uh, about 100,000 of them been cleaned up, but there's still three or 400,000 wells that need to be cleaned up today or eventually a sizable undertaking uh, that could easily exceed $100 billion uh, in, in eventual cleanup. Uh, in addition to that, there's, there's 100,000 oil and gas facilities, things like tanks, farms, and compression stations all over the province, and that's tens of billions more. There's 400,000 kilometers of pipeline uh, that needs to be safely retired, and that's before we even get to the oil sands. So it's, it's enormous. Uh, the regulator who manages it all, they have two estimates. They have a public one, and they have a private one. They did an internal study uh, a year or two ago uh, questioning those public estimates that they stand behind publicly. The public estimate for everything, the oil sands, coal mines, pipelines, the wells, uh, the public estimate is $60 billion in cleanup. And so that's, uh, that's all they're trying to protect us from. Uh, they're doing a bad job of it. Uh, we only have a tiny fraction of that held as security. Uh, the public is at risk of uh, funding the rest of it if uh, the industry disappears into bankruptcy. But the real problem is the, the internal estimate, the internal number. that the regu- When the regulator looked at things closely, they came to a bigger number, $260 billion as a minimum. And so that's the scale of this. I mean, they're all their elaborate estimation. It's, it's, in the end of the day, it's a guess. But we're talking about an absolutely enormous number for which we have nothing in the bank and... Uh, the polluter has already been losing money for a decade, and so we're we're running out of time if uh, the polluter is actually going to pay. I mean, the Kenny government just you know gave this much ballyhooed hundred million dollar loan to the Orphan Well Association. This is the industry funded industry funded in quotes group that is you know ultimately responsible for cleaning up these wells. I mean, a hundred million dollars. You're talking about. $60 billion at a minimum, but something more like $260 billion, like $100 million, like who gives a shit? It is a drop in the bucket. I mean, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create uh, 500 jobs, might clean up 1,000 wells, according to the government's own estimates for whatever they're worth. Uh, and so that's welcome, uh, but it is grossly inadequate for the scale of the challenge. And that's, that's kind of at the root of this. Uh, the problem is so big... Uh, we have a lot of trouble just facing facing the simple facts and looking for an easy way out. Um, leveraging private money by simply lending it to them uh, is is a cheap uh, way to stimulate jobs. Uh, but if we are going to clean up 300,000 wells uh, before it's too late, uh, the scale, the spending required is in the billions every year. Uh, and that means billions of dollars in job creation uh, every year. Those are... There's no retraining, no relocation, uh, no capital costs involved in the cleanup. It's the same folks that are sitting around unemployed today uh, on sale that are required to do the cleanup work. Uh, And so there's enormous economic opportunity, but it requires the political will to hold the industry accountable. And that is sorely lacking in Alberta. I mean, it does require us to kind of reach for the brass ring there. Okay, I think you've set the table for what we are dealing with when it comes to the the unfunded environmental oil well liability crisis. Um, the other kind of head of this two-headed snake is AIMCO. And I'll give a bit of background on AIMCO, and if you have anything you need to add or the thing people need to know about, please jump in. But AIMCO is, this is a crown corporation. You know, it was, it was created under the Stelmac regime. It's not that old. It's like 11 or 12 years old. And it was created to manage the pensions of Alberta's public sector workers. Um, 
pensions, just to, to reiterate this, and I say this anytime I bring up pensions, pensions are the deferred wages of workers. They are a section of, of wages that has been set aside and, and, and has been set aside to give back to the workers when they are no longer able to work. Okay, so if that's what pensions are, that's what AMCO is, why should we care about this? Well, Kenny has been empire building with AMCO, and it should be making anyone who has a pension managed by AMCO very nervous. You know, first he transferred over the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund over to AIMCO's control. This was done over the objections of the teachers, done for no good reason, really. I think they say cost savings. But the, the funny thing is, is that the ATRF, the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund, was actually far better at managing the investments of teachers over the years than AIMCO has been at managing their own investments. And so teachers were not very pleased with that. Um, you know, under the NDP government, the pensions, uh, the public sector pensions won the ability to leave AIMCO if they so desired. This is kind of a key feature of like of actual customer service. Like if, if you've got a pension fund manager that is managing your pension for you and they're doing poorly, the ability to leave is actually a, a pretty big stick that you have as a pension as a, as a pension uh, that you can use on your pension fund manager. That stick is now gone. And finally, the kind of last most important part of this empire building is uh, Jason Kenney uh, and his kind of proto-separatist talking points, his fair deal for Alberta stuff. And one of the part, one of the big talking points that he uses in this fair deal for Alberta uh, rhetoric is taking Alberta out of the Canada pension plan and taking the money that is Albertans in that context and transferring it to AIMCO. Okay, so that's what AIMCO is. This is the empire that Kenny is building around AIMCO. Um, why would he do such a thing? And I mean, it, it had been signaled through proxies. You know, Daniel Smith was on some national television broadcast kind of or national television broadcast talking about this. It, you know, uh, unnamed government officials were were floating this to Don Braid in columns. But just a few days before the budget, Jason Kenney was out on his hind legs telling the public that due to uh, you know circumstances, the cancellation of the tech oil sands mine, the Wet'suwet'en solidarity blockades, anything, anything, any reason he kind of brought up at the moment, uh, Justin Trudeau is being so mean to us that we're just going to have to sink public money into oil and gas projects. And he promised details on that at the end of the month. Okay, so whatever. Uh, sure, I mean, take it what you will. I mean, conservatives, you can make a lot of jokes about the principles of conservatives and the ideology of conservatism. But uh, and that being totally hollow and false. But uh, okay, uh, if that's what you're gonna do, uh, sure. Then then the budget comes out, and there's nothing in the budget on this. There is not a dollar set aside in the budget for what Kenny just came out and told the media was was gonna happen. So where is that money gonna come from? I mean, the the natural conclusion here is that money is going to come from pensions, and there are there are processes and mechanisms that would allow him to do so. So yeah, so there are mechanisms that would allow Jason Kenney to set aside uh, pension money to, to essentially indulge in this, this publicly owned oil and gas project that Kenney is speculating about. Okay, so there we go. We've got the two setups that we needed to get out of the way. We've got what the hell is wrong with uh, you know our unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis and what the hell is AIMCO and, and what the hell is AIMCO up to. And this is why it's so important to consider AIMCO's prior investments in oil and gas. And we've done a bunch of research on this, and we have turned up some extremely troubling trends when it comes to AIMCO's investments in the conventional oil and gas and oil field services sector. So, okay, so before we even get to that, AIMCO is very upfront about the fact 
that they are heavy or they're long on Alberta. Um, you know, AIMCO CEO Kevin Ubeline has said out loud to the Standing Committee on the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund on, f- on June 21st, 2019, he said, and I quote, In fact, 8% in Alberta, from our perspective, is a pretty massive overweight against Alberta's representation in the total economy, which is closer to one half percent. So you might think of that as a 7.5% overweight. We're very comfortable with that overweight because, as Dale has already said, I won't be redundant, we see a lot of good investment opportunities in our own backyard. Frankly, we have in some instances, not all but in some, a home field advantage. We understand the marketplace around the block and across town better than we might understand the marketplace in far-flung places. End quote. And we also had Kevin Ubeline on, on uh, Bloomberg Television, May 28th, 2019. Quote, we have an overexposure, if you will, or a long exposure to Alberta overall, but we think that's quite natural because we have insights and we can evaluate transactions that are closer to home. Okay, uh, that's the end of that quote. I, I mean, I don't know how you can interpret that, Regan, as anything but like um, AIMCO is, is, has a lot of oil and gas investments. <laughs> very risky, very risky investments at that. That's uh, a big part of the problem. Uh, when you're talking about Alberta oil and gas, you're talking about an industry that hasn't turned a profit in a decade. And uh, you might assume there's all sorts of wonderful investments he'll be able to find uh, when if AIMCO is directed to invest in oil and gas, like Kenny says. Uh, but we've already, we've already played this game before. The NDP uh, invested uh, up to 3% of the Heritage Trust Fund, which is over half a billion, uh, into what they call the growth mandate. Uh, into high-growth stocks, and uh, what that meant in reality was oil and gas stocks. They moved a couple of real estate assets into the portfolio, but uh, at least 2 out of $3 was spent on fracking companies and oil and gas companies uh, from 2015 forward uh, during these tough times. And so we have a, we other than uh, a couple of AIMCO executives' word, uh, we have examples of them trying to find profitable investments in Alberta oil and gas at the direction of politicians. And when we take a look at all the investments that were made under that, the companies they invested in, and how those have played out, and what the character of those investments were, it should be very troubling for, for Albertans, uh, whether or not they have, they have a pension. Uh, it's bad enough um, that we are gambling uh, our deferred wages on risky things like oil and gas uh, when we're talking about long-term investments. Uh, But even before we get to that, the AIMCO, when directed by government, wasn't making productive investments uh, for society. Uh, Their typical investment was a high-interest loan of last resort to a company who was unable to borrow anywhere else, and that loan was typically used to pay back other debtors. It's not exactly the most productive investment of... uh, pooled resources one can imagine even before we we talk about the risk involved yeah or those investments were used to do share buybacks or to create dividends or to relocate operations to other countries i mean we've got examples here that we'll go into that we have details on that are extremely troubling 
and, and and a bit more detail on on what you're talking about. So yeah, the very very first budget that the NDP brought in, part of that budget was the Alberta Growth Mandate, and I I think we can all agree that governments should not be telling pension fund managers what to do. But in this case, the NDP did. I think it was a mistake. And yes, three percent of the Alberta Heritage Trust Fund was allocated to this Alberta Growth Mandate, and it was essentially an invest local thing. And you're right, too. Of the four hundred and six million dollars that had been invested under the Growth Mandate, nearly two hundred and seventy million of that, or two thirds went to oil and gas investments. They went to companies like Calfrac Well Services, Pinecliff Energy, Razor Energy, uh, Kinder Morgan Canada, hilariously. They actually probably did pretty well on that investment because um, because the federal government overpaid so much for it. A Trident Exploration, a company that went bankrupt. A Perpetual Energy, a company we'll talk about later. Um, the, and the only reason we actually know about these investments, Regan, is because there's a little more disclosure that's involved with Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund investments than what you get out of AIMCO. AIMCO is a, is a black box. Like You get an annual report in one meeting a year with the, with the senior management that's like on the record with a committee, and that's it. And, the, and their annual report does not have a lot of detail in it. And, it's, and so the only reason we were actually able to get this information is because of reporting around the Alberta Heritage Savings Trust Fund. And why don't we just go into some of these investments? Why don't we start off with um, with a, a very prominent one, one that people may have heard about, one a company that went bankrupt last year, Trident Exploration Corp. Um, Inco invested $12.3 million from the Heritage Trust Fund into Trident as part of the Alberta Growth Mandate. But then they also invest. They also did this thing that uh, <laughs> that that has become a habit for them, which is that once they get under the hood of these companies with one of these Heritage Trust Fund investments, they start. Um, they essentially, as as Regan was saying, they become this lender, this lender of last resort, high interest loans. And um, you know, in August second, twenty seventeen, Trident announced that it had secured a sixty million dollar credit facility at an annual interest rate of seven point one five percent. And then. You know, less than two years later, on May first, twenty nineteen, Trident went bankrupt, leaving behind substantial environmental and cleanup liabilities. I know the media estimated it to be three hundred and twenty nine million dollars, but um, I think Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project had that analysis much higher. Do you do you remember that number off the top of your head, Regan? Yeah, the simple multiplier would be at least a, could be easily be in the range of a billion. So like one company, a billion dollars worth of environmental liabilities, and AIMCO was listed as a creditor for more than $60 million in Trident's receivership documents. So they were $60 million into AIMCO was $60 million into Trident. Just incredible stuff. Okay, so another one that I think is worth bringing up, Pinecliff Energy. These are primarily a gas producer, natural gas producer. They received $6.3 million in direct investment. Uh, from the Alberta Heritage Trust Fund as part of the Alberta Growth Mandate, as well as further investment in high-interest loans. And uh, a- and when you look at it, like the terms of their debt, $49 million worth of debt that AIMCO had extended to Pinecliff was recently renegotiated, like just came out like at the end of February, beginning of March, that, that the terms of that debt had been pushed like two years into the future. And according to a June 2019 Bloomberg report, AIMCO owns around 5% of Pinecliff Energy, might be higher now, depending on the terms of that renegotiation. The share price, when AIMCO initially invested in August 2016, $1.03 a share. Uh, the share price as of today, do you want to make a guess, like a over-under guess there? Do you, think it, do you think it's more or less than a quarter, Regan? Uh, less. I think it's less than, a, less than 15 cents. That more or less than fifteen cents could be less. Yes, yeah, more or less than ten cents. <laughs> I'll stick with the trend. Less. 
All right, it is. It's it's six and a half cents a share at the moment. Again, remember the initial share share price was a dollar three cents a share. Uh, okay, let's let's dig into another one of these companies, Journey Energy. Imco is uh, substantially invested in Journey Energy. They are a mixed junior oil and gas producer. Imco owns more than 18% of Journey's outstanding shares, according to a September 2019 press release from Journey. Uh, they've, re- they've received three separate investments through the Heritage Trust Fund. Um, they, these come up to $12.8 million. But again, Journey Energy has also received substantial high-interest loans, uh, and the terms of those repayment uh, have been renegotiated at least once. More troublingly, in 2018, it was announced that Amco Financing was being used for a share buyback, and we're going to have all this stuff in the show notes. But again, I don't think I don't think under the terms of this invest local mandate that Amco should be giving money to an oil and gas company so that they can buy back their shares to the benefit of the existing shareholders, right? Like that—that that strikes me as way out there. No doubt. Yeah. And and okay, um, in October. 2016 when the original investment in Amco occurred the share price was $2.05 all right uh, any guesses on the share price today we won't do the we won't do the higher or lower we'll I'll just I'll just 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 pick a number out of the air well they must have made money somewhere I'll say $3 no the share price is 42 cents a share the, the price has gone down by more than $1.50 a share from the original investment uh I, I got to do a couple more of these because, again, it, it, it is incredible. Uh, on January 31st, uh, 2017, Razor Energy received a $7.2 million investment from the Heritage Fund via the Alberta Growth Mandate. At the very same time, it also received a $30 million loan at 10% interest. Um, uh, the funds, according to the news release from Razor, were used to, pr- to purchase additional oil and gas assets, assets in the Swan Hill region. And as part of this uh, this financing deal, Amco ended up acquiring 10% of Razor Energy. Okay. And then there was a further investment, $15 million in loans to Razor on the same terms. And later that year, in 2018, Razor announced that it would begin paying a dividend. This is a tiny company, hardly any cash flow, hardly any profits on the books, but they were, they were going to start paying a dividend. Okay, whatever. Uh, in February of this year, Razor announced that they were suspending their dividend. And uh, again, the share price for Razor on the initial investment in February 2017, $3.21 a share. The share price today, $0.14 cents a share. I mean, I could do this all day, um, and I, I, we could like literally just be going through these investments one by one. I think that's enough for now, but uh, there is one that I do want to bring up that I think is very important. And that is Perpetual Energy. Regan, uh, what can you tell us about Perpetual Energy and their involvement in the kind of unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis? Well, Perpetual played a, an important role in an important episode uh, under uh, the previous government. Uh, when the previous government came in, they're facing uh, the flagship industries in, in, in very dire straits. Uh, <clears throat> and so they have tools that at, at their disposal that they want they don't want industry to fail on their watch. It wasn't their fault. They didn't create the problem. They just inherited it. They want to delay the consequences. And so they used the Alberta Treasury branches to extend loans to smaller local companies. They used AIMCO to invest money in s- smaller local companies. Uh, Chinese investment uh, to join uh, in this game. And Perpetual is one of them who sold thousands of wells to a uh, Chinese outfit that came in 
uh, buying up these old and inactive wells. Uh, Perpetual sold Sequoia 2,300 wells for $10. Uh, and came up, came with a sweetheart deal, came with uh, hedged contracts that paid above market value for the natural gas these wells produced for 18 months. Uh, when those above market prices uh, ran their course after 18 months, Sequoia went bankrupt. Uh, they, had, um, they weren't legitimate businessmen trying to turn a profit in tough conditions. They were buying up garbage for a song, looting what they could, and then walking away from it in bankruptcy. And now it's tied up in court. Uh, the receiver for Sequoia Pricewaterhouse Coopers is trying to reverse that sale. They're trying to send those wells back to Perpetual. Uh, Perpetual isn't a terribly big producer. Uh, I think they're worth 40 or $80 million in market cap. Uh, but these wells they sold for ten dollars uh, have a cleanup value associated with them in the hundreds of millions of dollars, and so not only could Perpetual not have afforded to clean them up, uh, they slept them off for ten bucks uh, to some uh, dishonest foreign investors to loot them. Uh, in the meantime, uh, and when they went broke, that is what the law says. That is how it's supposed to work. These wells should be returned to their previous owners, who are then responsible for cleaning them up. But the system's broken in Alberta, and uh, the orphans don't go back to their parents. Um, there is a lawsuit uh, trying to force that, uh, but it's uh, tied up in the courts for years, and, and that's the root of the problem is we let companies uh, get rid of their garbage for a fraction of a dollar uh, to companies that will never have the ability to clean it up. And uh, Perpetual was uh, part of that episode uh, that saw more than $4 billion in Chinese investment come in and buy up uh, failed companies and garbage assets. Uh, and they had, a, they had a nice run for a couple of years, but their uh, Sequoia went broke and a number of other ones have. Uh, it wasn't a long-term legitimate business strategy. It was uh, looting and uh, Perpetual played a big part in that. And what is the current status of the lawsuit? Do you know? Uh, there's, they've been, an, um, a lot of it was thrown out. Uh, first time it came before a judge, uh, but the, the estimates are it's going to be tied up for between two to five years. Uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm not terribly convinced. Um, it's a real serious effort to reestablish that ability to send wells back to their previous owners. Um, I have trouble believing that uh, the industry and their accountants, that that's their objective. Uh, I, I, would, I would think it much more likely that the reason it's tied up in court is to keep it tied up in courts. Uh, so that uh, no less reliable hands uh, start pushing this issue, trying to push wells back to previous owners, like the law says. Uh, and in order to avoid that, there's, it makes a lot of sense to tie it up in the courts to rag the puck for two to five years uh, while the game can carry on. Yeah, it's cheaper to pay lawyers, right? Okay, the, the AIMCO angle on this is that Perpetual Energy received an investment of uh, just over $10 million from the Heritage Fund via the Alberta Growth Mandate in, Febu in February 2017. And then in March 2017, just, just a month later, AIMCO announced a significant investment on top of that, $45 million worth of debt and millions of, of, of shares acquired at $1.75 a share. The share price as of today for Perpetual Energy is uh, $0.03 cents a share. Uh, and this investment, uh, I'd have to go back and look at the timelines, but I'm, I'm like 92% sure that this investment by AIMCO came after the details of the lawsuit against, or Sequoia's lawsuit against Perpetual came to well, light. It right? came after the sale. And so the reason Perpetual looked attractive 
is because they just ditched hundreds of millions of dollars off their balance sheet for uh, 10 okay, bucks. Okay. Uh, and then uh, made them more attractive. AIMCO steps in, uh, but Perpetual faces the risk that that sale could get re- reversed. It should get reversed. Uh, and then uh, AIMCO's already lost plenty of money on their Perpetual investment, but they stand to lose much more if uh, the orphans come home. Yeah, just just wild stuff. So, I mean, you go back, you go back, and you look at all of this. Every single investment made by AIMCO in a publicly traded Alberta oil and gas company done via this Alberta growth mandate has seen the share price of that company go down after the initial investment. Okay, um, that sucks. Um, and and may, it's not may, it's not that they're uniquely inept. Uh, it's just the state of the industry. Uh, mm. Despite their best efforts and their local knowledge, they can't find a winner. That should tell us all something. We should we should be concerned about the state, about the maturity of our industry. Exactly, and and then, you know, you layer on top of this the environmental liabilities on these companies' books that Amco has invested in, and you know, Amco didn't, um, you know, start this unfunded oil well environmental liability crisis, but they certainly seem to be culpable in it. Um, just by their very actions of investing and then floating these loans and then renegotiating the terms of these loans and kind of keeping these these zombie companies alive, it, it seems like they're entangled with all this. Absolutely. They're helping to perpetuate it. The, the objective of a Ponzi scheme is to keep it afloat as long as possible. Uh, and uh, because... Regulators have been so captured in Alberta and are, are, not, are not being duped around these issues. They are long since complicit. The industry is in systemic crisis and the regulators' incentives flip. Their objective is to keep it hidden under the rug and uh, that's how we, we got to this point. Uh, and we're doing everything we can to keep the Ponzi scheme afloat. We're lending them as much money as we can. We just learned from Reuters yesterday that Canadian banks have dramatically increased their oil and gas loans over each of the last three quarters. Uh, it's not going to look, uh, after Monday morning, it didn't look like such a sharp investment. Uh, and that's what, we're, but that's what we're doing, is throwing money at these failed companies to keep them afloat. But it's a fool's game. Uh, they're unprofitable. They're never going to be profitable again. We need to stop throwing good money after the bad, trying to keep them afloat, uh, so that we can hopefully escape uh, any, any blame for the inevitable collapse of these companies. Uh, but uh, there's AIMCO playing with uh, our pension dollars to try to keep the game afloat. And if AIMCO is losing their shirt on these equity investments, uh, just on purely on share price value for these companies, I mean, maybe they're making it back on this kind of like private equity, vulture capital, high interest loan game that they're playing. But I mean, uh, like something like this price shock is going to come along and it's going to wipe out a bunch of these companies and they're just going to be left holding on to, AIMCO just going to have millions of dollars of worthless debt that they're never going to be able to collect from bankrupt companies. Like they're strip mining these companies, they're stripping them clean. Um, simultaneously, at the end of the day, it's going to be the public and, and Albertans that are going to be responsible for cleaning up their environmental liabilities, not AIMCO. That's, that's right. If the, ta- if the polluter doesn't pay, the taxpayer will. Yeah, and and I don't want to get into red water. I don't want to spend a lot of time on it because I know you end up when you do media like on this issue, red water comes up all the time. But maybe kind of just briefly talk about why the red water thing doesn't matter as much as as kind of people tend to think it does, and why it really just comes down to a regulator that's not doing its job. Right. So the red water case grew out of uh, banks hoping to escape cleanup. 
that when a company went bankrupt, the regulator can ask them, can force them to clean all sorts of stuff up. Uh, and according to the law, that would come before even secured creditors like banks get paid back uh, whatever they were owed. Um, banks didn't like that, so they tried to escape that cleanup. They made the argument in court that if a company goes bankrupt, we can, if there's any contaminated sites or anything that's going to be expensive, we can just disown it. Uh, any, anything that doesn't contribute to, our, to the value of the company, we can just disown it. We'll take everything of value, sell it, and pay ourselves back. Uh, they made that argument in lower court and appeals court in Alberta and won. And it took the Supreme Court to sort it out properly uh, to make it clear that regulators aren't creditors. They're not debtors who get in line at the end of the day. Um, they enforce public rules. Uh, regulators not a creditor. And the Supreme Court reestablished the point that was established by courts 30 years ago that cleanup comes first. Regulators can make you clean up anything, even if you're bankrupt, comes before the banks. Uh, the reason that decision hasn't been of great consequence is because it's changed nothing. Uh, the banks have changed nothing about their behavior. In fact, uh, so that decision is a little over a year old, and we just learned from Reuters yesterday that Canadian banks have increased their oil and gas loans in each of the last three quarters. So not only has um, the Redwater decision uh, had a, a <clears throat> it hasn't cut off lending. Uh, it has increased lending. It has the opposite effect of intended. And so the, Redwater, the reason Redwater decision didn't change anything is because the regulator here in Alberta has always had the power to make people clean up whatever it wants. Uh, but the Redwater doesn't, ha hasn't changed the fact that our captured regulator doesn't want to make industry clean stuff up. And so they, they haven't been doing it and they didn't start doing it after Redwater, so we're in, left in the same place we were. We have a regulator that lacks the will to hold industry accountable. And yeah, we're, we're left with a, a regulator that wasn't going, wasn't doing anything in the first place, and this, this decision from a judge it didn't change anything when it came to the political will of the regulator to actually start doing what it was supposed to be doing. But exactly. I, I, I want to come back to AIMCO in that like, AIMCO making poor decisions isn't, uh, isn't necessarily a, a novel thing for them. I mean, they're a relatively new organization, 11 or 12 years old, started in 2008. Um, and they've made some shockingly poor decisions when it comes to financial and political uh, risk over the years. And it has kind of borne out in their investment performance. Um, LEPP, which is the Local Area Pension Plan, uh, is the largest single public service pension plan in Alberta. IMCO has never met lapse benchmarks for performance over the uh, entire term of its existence. <laughs> and uh, why that is, I mean, it's hard to, I mean, it's a big, it's a big pension fund manager. They have a lot of investments, but uh but it's worth pointing out that they've never beaten uh, the LAPP's um, benchmark for performance over its entire existence. But one of the things that might have affected uh, its its performance over the years, and and couple of some of the, I just want to highlight a few of the like just huge fucking gaffes they've made over the years, which kind of speak to Aimco's judgment. Uh, one of them is life settlements, uh, also infamously called uh, death death bonds. Um, this was one of Aimco's most infamous money losing ventures. And anecdotally, the reason why uh, Imco's first CEO, Leo de Beaver, was forced out of the organization, essentially death bonds are um, uh, seniors are encouraged to sell their life insurance policies to investors for a one-time cash payout. And then that investor, usually a hedge fund, continues to pay the life insurance premium, and they are the beneficiary when the person eventually dies. The investor is essentially betting 
that the payout to the senior and the continued payments of the premium will be less than the death benefit that they will eventually collect from the person who dies. Essentially, AIMCO was betting that seniors would die earlier. It turns out those a lot of those seniors whose death bonds that AIMCO held ended up living a longer than expected, and AIMCO lost their fucking shirt. Uh, this was around, in 2014, the Auditor General actually looked into this, uh, mostly about around the way that AIMCO was classifying and accounting uh, the risk around these, as well as their life expectancy models. But this is what the Auditor General had to say in 2014. The performance of these investments may be overstated in the year of purchase and understated in later years because large one-day gains were recognized. Um, that's the end of that quote. Um, I mean, these life settlement, this life settlement scheme and this investment was I- I- extremely ethically objectionable to me, but it also turned out to be extremely unprofitable. Um, we'd also be remiss to not bring up AIMCO's investments in private prisons. Uh, AIMCO, until recently, had shares in both Geo Group and Core Civic. Um, worth a total of around $4.8 million uh, as of March 31st, 2019, and maybe even into the second quarters or third quarter as well. Um, these are two private prison companies that essentially run and manage the concentration camps. Um, you might see them be called immigration detention centers by people who are maybe a little more squeamish than, my, than me, uh, set up by the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, ICE, in the United States. Uh, I'm sure we don't have to go into the details about the horrific nature of these private prisons and these uh, concentration camps, but they're bad. And no one should be investing in the companies that run them. AIMCO was. Eventually, AIMCO did divest from those companies after pressure was put upon them. But um, but it took people putting pressure upon them to realize that, hey, maybe we shouldn't, uh, shouldn't do that. Uh, AIMCO also owns $1.5 million in shares of Ladder Capital, a company which has been described as Donald Trump's shadow bank. So that's a, that's a lot of fun. And finally, we have the uh, the coup de grace, just an uh, incredible investment decision. It was announced on Boxing Day this year, which is a day that I am usually paying a lot of attention to the news and getting a lot of my news. Uh, it went, on Boxing Day 2019, it was announced that AIMCO, in partnership with global investment firm KKR, would be purchasing 65% of the Coastal GasLink pipeline from TC Energy for uh, a little under $4.3 billion. Now, uh, Regan, have you heard about this coastal gasoline pipeline and the news at all? I don't know. I think it might have been lately. Yeah, may have popped up in a national crisis uh, when the RCMP invaded Wet'suwet'en territory and uh, arrested uh, matriarchs and uh, their activists and and other uh, land defenders. Uh, Yeah, yeah, not good. And then there were solidarity blockades that popped up all over the country in response to this. Uh, you may again have seen that on the news. Um, because, yeah, because essentially this is unceded territory. There's never been a treaty. There's never been a battle that's actually said, oh, by the way, um, this is Canada's land and not the Wet'suwet'en territories, not the Wet'suwet'en uh, land. And so, yeah, uh, Coastal Gas Link, Alberta workers' pensions are $4.3 billion tied up in this, uh, this project that is, at the best case scenario, going to get built at the end of a gun. So... That's a thing. Um, but, okay, we've done our, our AIMCO kind of, like, trashing. I think it's time to get onto the, like, the hopeful stuff. And I know you've done a bit of thinking on this, Regan. Like, w- what is to be done? What is the reclamation boom that we can get going? How can we put the people to work who will be unemployed because of this oil price shock? How, how do we get moving on this? Well, that's the conundrum, is how to make the polluter pay when we have, outside of the oil sands here, we have a, an insolvent polluter. Uh, and we have a big problem. Uh, nobody needed any more of those, but uh, 
another part of the reason why I'm so focused on this is trying to solve this dilemma of how we make the insolvent polluter pay. And there's, uh, there's some ways we can go about doing that, um, but the reason we do it is because of the opportunities and uh, the silver lining to this mess that we've inherited from decades of fraud and mismanagement um, is that cleanup represents uh, such an enormous opportunity in Alberta. Uh, those hundreds of thousands of wells, those hundreds of billions of dollars in cleanup work, um, those are wages for folks struggling in the energy industry. Regardless of how much oil and gas we produce uh, in, in the future, uh, we can have full employment uh, in Alberta in the energy sector. Every rigger can keep on rigging. The same folks with the same equipment uh, can do the work to heal the land, to plug the methane leaks and venting um, that is a big part of these old and rotting wells uh, and uh, stimulate the economy in every corner of the province. There's an enormous opportunity and uh, it, the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project is uh, in the process of doing that work, of answering the question, of a answering what a reclamation boom would look like. What if we took these responsibilities seriously and we intended to clean up this enormous pile of mess over the next 20 years? What would that mean for Albertans? Uh, what sort of jobs could that create? What would that look like uh, in, uh, in every municipality across the province? And there's... Uh, such enormous opportunity hidden underneath uh, this implacable problem that uh, has stymied uh, regulators and politicians in Alberta over the last 10 years. Um, they lack the political will to hold the industry accountable. And that's the only missing piece. That political will is the only thing standing between uh, Albertans struggling in the oil and gas industry and a bright future of decades of full employment in oil and gas which awaits us if we can find the political courage uh, for industry to live up to its moral and legal obligations. Yeah, the question of whether we kind of let these companies die, whether we nationalize them and wind them down in an orderly fashion and train and transition those workers, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a political question and one we've got to figure out amongst ourselves. But, I mean, we have to, to kind of confront the question at its core and and. I haven't seen any indication from the, you know the political parties in Alberta that they're, they're that they are there yet. I think this is going to be an issue that's going to be forced by landowners, and uh, it is encouraging to see the work that you're doing and the work that landowners groups across the province are doing. There's just one kind of one hopeful little bit of of, of ray of sunshine that I want to bring up before we get out of here, and that is uh, Renew Well. You know this pilot project where they're putting solar on old oil and gas sites in southern Alberta. I will put the the details for that in the show notes, but I mean, do you see do you see that as an encouraging sign as, as a way to kind of pay for part of this, uh, you know, a part of this reclamation boom? Absolutely, it's a way to uh, add value to these sites that are at the end of their life. It's a way for farmers to continue enjoying uh, the service payments uh, that they get from the oil and gas, uh, and uh, there's all sorts of positive local effects uh, that. Electricity can be used for irrigation. Uh, it can reinforce uh, the wider grid, uh, and there's a, there's a fairly significant potential for this in southern Alberta, and there's a there's a parallel potential in northern Alberta uh, when it comes to geothermal. Uh, same folks, same drilling expertise could go into uh, that angle of it, and um, another side effect of all this cleanup. Um, there's there's a number of wells that could would be app could be applicants for uh, a solar uh, array there's others that would fit for geothermal 
but beyond that, um, the amount of land that could be returned to better, more productive uses, returned to farming, and the potential for things like regenerative farming to uh, capture carbon, to bury it in the soil, has enormous potential to start uh, to further the healing um, that we've uh, of the development that we've uh, pursued over the last century without properly planning uh, to uh, clean up after ourselves. Okay. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me, Regan. It's that time of the show, that time of the show where people can learn about how they can follow you and, and learn about more about the Alberta Liabilities Disclosure Project. What's the URL? What's the best place for people to go to learn more? Um, the ALDP is at aldpcoalition.com. Um, they're on Twitter, uh, at the ALDP Coalition. Uh, I'm on there, uh, RKB2, uh, and uh, Reclaim Alberta that's... Uh, focused on designing the solutions um, to this uh, is my other organization, reclaimalberta.ca, uh, where you'll find uh, a good deal of my research. Um, all of ALDP's work quantifying this problem, you'll find that on their website. And uh, stay tuned because uh, we're busy trying to take advantage of this uh, political moment uh, when we have so many friends and allies so focused on this issue, when there's uh, media attention. Uh, focused on this issue at long last. Um, there'll be much more to come in the near future. Awesome. All right. Well, go follow all those things. I do. It's great. It's a great way to keep track of this problem. If you like this podcast and you want to keep hearing this podcast more in the future, uh, we're a bit rushed for time. We're going to get hustled out of our podcast studio. So I'll get right to the financial ask. Please go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons. Join the 250 other fine people who regularly give this independent media project money every month. Five, fifteen, fifty dollars I don't care. Any amount every month helps a lot. So go to theprogressreport.ca slash patrons, put in your credit card and contribute. We would really, really appreciate it. Another thing I got to flex on really, really fast is if you go to our Facebook page, if you go to our Twitter uh, profile for Progress Alberta, we have a paid sick leave letter tool go to that send your mla a letter that says we should have paid sick leave in the context of this coronavirus pandemic people need paid sick leave if you have any notes thoughts comments things you think i need to hear about you can reach me on twitter at duncan kinney and you can reach me by email at duncan k at progressalberta.ca thanks so much to cosmic family communists for the amazing theme thank you for listening and goodbye did you know that Progress Alberta is part of a national community of leftist podcasts on the Ricochet Podcast Network? You can find the Alberta Advantage, 49th Parahel, Kino Lefter, Well Reds, The Progress Report, Les Ficelles, Out of Left Field, and Unpacking the News, as well as a bunch of other awesome podcasts at Ricochet Media or wherever you download your podcasts.